So, uh, welcome to the next episode of The Long Road. Um, very uh, special guest in the studio today at the Impact Centre. Um, we've got acclaimed, critically acclaimed author, Trevor Carroll, um, who started out a life as a tour guide, then proceeded on to becoming a, uh, a top-line New South Wales policeman, and then has turned into somewhat of an author. So, welcome Trevor. How are you going? Good, thanks, mate. Exciting, mate. You've uh, you've done a fair bit, so uh, yeah. Yeah, I've had a very fortunate life. Um, not not so fortunate in the way I was brought up. I was brought up in a. In a my father died when I was very young, and uh, we lived in a, in a miners' cottage in Broken Hill, and uh, with a widowed mother, six kids, and so it was a, a hard slog in the first few years. Um, worked on the mines, and then uh, one day uh, my stope collapsed, and I decided. There's more to life than Broken Hill, and I just sold what I had, and I was next thing I know, I was on a Qantas jet to London. So, Qantas jet to London. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a pretty uh, dramatic change, isn't it? You know, from Broken Hill, probably would have only had a population of four or five thousand at that stage, or uh, maybe twenty. About thirty thousand. About thirty thousand. Okay. Um, so from 30,000, a uh, town where you probably knew everyone, you, you mentioned everyone's name, to uh, now uh, quite literally one of the biggest uh, cities on the planet, uh, London. How, when, why? What possessed you? Well, as I said, I, I, growing up in Broken Hill was flies, prickles and heat, and, uh, and I always loved the idea of green fields and grass and, and uh, it's something we didn't have a, a lot of. Uh, but leaving Broken Hill in February and arriving in London a few days later was a shock because I got to London and it was absolutely freezing cold. I didn't even own a coat. Didn't own a coat? Didn't own a coat. And it was stiff down the freezing, uh, leaving Broken Hill at probably 35 degrees. So uh, I, had to get, I had to start change my ways into uh, to living in London and living in Europe and um, try to, basically started working straight away, odd jobs here and there. And uh, and before you knew it, I was uh, looking around for a little bit something a, a bit more um, adventurous. And I noticed in the Australasian Express there was an ad for drivers for tour buses. And tour so, buses. Tour buses. And so I thought I can do that because I can do it. I, I, I was as mental. I can do anything. You see. <laughs> so I turned up uh, at the office in um, in Fulham, and um, there's this bloke interviewing me. He says now. Um, what do you like mechanically? I said, oh, I can fix anything. I had no idea. Wow. Um, and what about driving heavy vehicles? Yeah, I'd driven them all my life. I'd never driven one before. The, the biggest I'd, I'd driven would probably be an F100. How old were you at this stage? I was 21. Okay. And, um, and they said, what, about, no, what do you know about Europe? And I said, oh, no, all well, the back of my hand. And um, I'd been to... Uh, Basically, you've bullshitted your way into this job. E- exactly. And so <laughs> within a couple of days, I was driving a... A Bristol low-decker, double-decker bus uh, with 20 passengers on it going to Turkey. And um, learning how to drive the bus on the way. I uh, had to learn how to maintain it. had to uh, learn how to deal with passengers and had to l- figure out where I was going because I didn't have much of an idea. So um, the uh, old Bristol double-decker buses, uh, they were decked out like caravans. So upstairs were bunks and seat arranged at the front. Downstairs was a kitchen. Carried 20 passengers. Fully uh, survivable on board. You know, everyone did some work and... The passengers cooked, and we had two crew, uh, myself and a, and a uh, tour leader, and he did the uh, the guiding, and also some driving, and um, and that was it. That was seven weeks around Europe, from uh, London to Turkey and back via uh, Greece, and then coming back via France. You certainly got your uh, probably your taste of adventure there. Oh yes, it was. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't real easy, but um, it was enjoyable. And as, the more I did those tours, the better I got at it. So. I end up doing that seven-week tour back-to-back uh, eight times in a row. Oh, wow. So so that's for, for an entire year. And uh, so I just got back to uh, London, and, and the buses, the buses were unique in themselves. They were a Bristol low-decker, a country, um, country uh, English country bus. Uh, they had a five-speed crash box gearbox, so they had a bit of, um, a bit of go in them. And uh, they had a Gardner engine, which was uh, which are very very uh, easy to maintain, or easy to fix when they break down, and they break down quite often. Um, 
But I got back to London and uh, the bus I was driving uh, was known as Knackers because each bus had its own unique name. Yeah. And Knackers, I'd been driving it for a year. Got back to London and it was... Blue smoke was coming out of the exhaust. You know, the, something went wrong with the timing. I did, couldn't fix that. And so we, we got back the bus back to London to repair it. And then they said, oh, um, uh, we need you to do a quick trip for us. I said, oh, yeah. Um, so they said, someone else will fix up Knackers. You've got Grunt. <laughs> Grunt was the oldest bus in the fleet. At that stage, they had about eight buses, I think. Yep. And um, I said, <clears throat> where, where am I going? So said, oh, you're going to the Kathmandu. You've got to get there in three weeks. Kathmandu. So this is 15,000 kilometres through the worst roads in the world. And uh, and I said, oh, yeah, no, no worries. And uh, oh, you, this is John. He's your courier. By the way, he was a passenger before. you got to teach him how to drive on the way. Oh, my God. So that's all right. Yep, no worries. And uh, I thought, this is great. No passengers. We have, oh, by the way, we found you seven passengers too. <laughs> so three weeks to Kathmandu. And... Um, but basically, it was uh, drive to uh, London to Istanbul. And there's a week. There's a week gone. Istanbul through to the other side of Iran. That's another week, and then you're really stretching it. They get from the Afghan border to Kathmandu in a week, because as I said, some of these roads are just atrocious. And but wasn't a problem. Um, I checked the oil, checked the water, tyres are up, and away we went. And uh, we just drove and drove and drove. Uh, the tyres were, were falling apart by the time we got to uh, Iran, and uh, tyres were cheap in Iran, so we bought a new set of tyres. We also happened to lose our passports too, which is a bit of a problem. Yeah, Because uh, there was a, an issue with visas on our return journey through Iraq, um, and we couldn't get visas on the road. We had to get visas in our home country. Uh-huh. So the lost passports turned up in Sydney, and they got visas, and so on. You know, that's, a, that's a long story in itself. So we enter into Afghanistan and we find out on the border that we've only got four days to get through Afghanistan because they're closing their borders because of an um, Islamic conference in, uh, in Kabul. Uh, so, okay, we did it in four days. So we're zip bolting through uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan's a pretty unique country in itself. Uh, this was on the 28th of April, 1978. Uh, as we're driving along the, the highway running up from Kandahar to Kabul, and this is a bitumen road built by the Americans. Yep. The road, the other road we'd just come off from uh, Herat to Kandahar was a concrete road built by the Russians. So they're both competing for the, uh, uh, <coughs> for the, the influence in Afghanistan. Just so, just so it happens that road built by the Russians leads into Russia which is going to help them out in the future when they, invite, <coughs> when they use it to invade Afghanistan. So we're driving up um, the highway and we come across, uh, we overtake a whole line of tanks heading towards Kabul. And there, Afghan soldiers are waving at us and we're waving back. Another hour later, we come across another line of tanks heading towards us. Oh. They're waving at us, we wave back. Didn't think much of it. And as we're driving into Kabul at night, uh, it, was, it was dark. Because I could see flashes. The, the city was in darkness, and I could see flashes everywhere. <laughs> so they're trying to flag you down. You're thinking they're, they're uh, encouraging you. No, no, no they're just waving us. They're happy. Oh, they're wow. Um, and we're driving into, Afga- into Kabul, and uh, see flashes everywhere. And it was like lightning, but it was coming from the ground up. And, uh, and uh, so as, as we're coming around, one to through a dark industrial area on, on the main road, um, and then I saw the source of the flashes. They were tanks uh, firing from one side of the, from our, from my right, over to the left. And I saw this as I was coming into a roundabout. So I killed the lights. Uh, I saw soldiers running around the place, and I went around the roundabout to, to head back out of town. But we got pulled over. Uh, soldiers dragged me out of the, out of the cab, um, shoved the bayonet to my neck, and oh. I was screaming, yelling. And that's when we realised there actually actually a war was going on. <laughs> um, they, they tried to say that we were American spies and things like that. But anyway, eventually uh, an officer who spoke good English turned up and we were arrested and taken to our hotel and put under guard. Um, but we had to leave. I was trying to tell them. We had to leave because the, the borders are closed and um, uh, no one listened to us. So early one morning the guard was gone. So I fired up the bus. We all piled on board and we took off to Pakistan. And we got to Pakistan and the, uh, the border guards there, they just, oh, you've overstayed your visa. And they find us. 
Oh, so we oh, just paid, paid the fine and kept on going. Oh. So, but anyway, we were behind schedule by a couple of days at this stage, and we kept on going and we're going through India, and we go up to Nepal, uh, and we're, we're going very. <coughs> we think we get there just on time because we we've got a load of passengers waiting for us in Kathmandu to load up and come back with us. Yeah. So we come up to uh, come up to through the through the through the Himalayas, and all of a sudden we come to a dead stop because right in front of us the road had disappeared. The road had fallen into the valley. The valley was hundreds and hundreds of feet below us, oh. probably in the... Th- uh, was that in daytime or nighttime? Daytime. Oh, thank goodness. So um, there's all these little uh, Nepalese carrying rocks and they're making baskets uh, out of wire and they're trying and building up the w- road from way down below to, to get the road in. And so we couldn't, we couldn't go. And they weren't going to fix this thing in a hurry. So the passengers, the seven passengers we had, they decided, uh, no, we're going. So they walked across, and there's a bus on the other side, um, a local bus. Me and John, we turned around. We thought, well, we'll go back to India, and there's another road, which is about three days' drive away, where we can come up to Af- to uh, to uh, Kathmandu from another direction. But while we're down there near the border, I didn't want to leave because you go through a lot of rigmarole getting in and out of these countries. We found a slight line on the map that showed, showed another road through the lowlands of on Nepal. So we said, we'll give it a run. So we give that a run. They come to a dead end, a river, a wide river. It's probably about 200 metres across. But what serviced it was two rowboats, two long ro- boats joined together with planks. And that's, so we got the bus onto that They and they rowed us across the other side and then we continued on. We got lost in the jungle a couple of times. Finally, we come up, we found the other road at the Hutunde and we drove over on this god awful road you've ever seen. It's just uh, we got hung up so many times when there were dips where the, the the wheels are swinging free, and we ripped the ass end off the bus. We had to shove it down the aisle. <laughs> so we eventually rolled into Kathmandu three days late, and there were other buses, top deck buses, waiting there because they were on the same departure as us. All the passengers were waiting, and they saw this wreck of a bus come in with two wreck of a blokes behind the wheel, and uh, <clears throat> oh, we got the bus going again. Uh, we got every ship shape, and then we loaded on 20 passengers and we drove them back to London via uh, Iraq, uh, Jordan, Israel, and Syria. And that was a 10-week trip, and uh, that was the, the first of my many overlands I ended up doing. So I, I liked the overlands so much, I ended up doing uh, six of them, but the last three were London to Sydney, 20 weeks each time. Oh, wow. Six months, or just five months. Five months travelling in a in a yeah, four in a, five yeah. yeah. Was Grunt always your uh, or did you get knackers back? No, no. <clears throat> I, I saw off Grunt then, and my next bus was um, Snot. Snot green uh, green. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I had uh, Rags, and my last bus was Casper. The friendly guys. Yeah. Um, but even though it's in, in my book, I tell the stories. Um, uh, last bus, for, for example, last trip, I picked up the group. Uh, of uh, I think about 30 passengers in Sydney and we had two buses and we drove them across Australia to Perth and it just so happens that one of the passengers on that trip was a tall, blonde, gorgeous Dutch woman. I was going to actually ask how many how many interesting kind of people did you meet there? Oh, lots, but, lots. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had all nationalities. Now, on that, that particular trip we had Aussies, Kiwis, uh, Dutch of course, um, Swiss, Norwegian, uh, French, so, but majority were Australians and Kiwis. And um, so, tell us about when this uh, hot, gorgeous uh, blonde uh, stepped onto your bus. Well, it's, it's, she got me tongue-tied pretty quickly, and um, <laughs> but uh, she was a really nice woman. She was uh, a, a, school, a school teacher from Holland. She decided she wanted to do, see see part of the world, and and um, so she was just one of the passengers for a while, but um, about six weeks later we got closer and closer and then uh, by the end of the trip we were very close and I decided that um, my travel days were over. Uh, we ended up, we married and um, we live together now in Terrigal. So, still. Uh, wow, so some 40, 40 years later. 40 years yeah. later. Wow. Who says uh, a sense of adventure doesn't pay off? That's right. <clears throat> so obviously when you, you've come back to us, you've come back to Australia, um, you're probably a little adventured out, to be perfectly honest. What happens then? Well, it just so happens, between trips a couple of years beforehand, I was in London, 
we're in the the pub at Fulham called the Cock, and um, uh, and I was about three parts cut uh, as we used to be on Saturday night, and the, the, someone was playing the piano and people were singing and carrying on. And I started talking to this Aussie girl, and she said, uh, "What are you going to do when you finish driving buses?" And I said, oh, "I've got no idea. I've never even thought about it." Obviously, I wasn't going to go back to mining and or, or boiler making as, as, as I'd started my life. But she said, "You should join the New South Wales Police. That's a great job. They're great people, and I've got friends who did it." And that, I'll start thinking about that. And then she disappeared. I never saw her again. Didn't even know her name. But that resonated with me. So when I finished the, the buses, got back to Sydney, and I rolled up at College Street and applied to join the New South Wales Police. They accepted me. Next thing I know, I was at the uh, police academy at, uh, at Redfern. And uh, a few months later, um, they gave me a gun and a uniform and sent me to Cabramatta. Wow. And uh, Cabramatta was, in the early 80s, that was wild country. It was just crazy. There was only 18 and 19 coppers at the station there. It's an old, uh, an old fibro house. And we used to call it uh, a stabbing a week, a murder a month. That was just... Wild West, eh? Yeah, we were flat out from... From, from the start of the shift to the end of the shift. That was just on, ongoing. And um, that uh, my time there started to come to an end when I, I was called up to the um, uh, to Bass Hill to get to back up the coppers there uh, one Sunday afternoon. Um, That's with the Mill Power Bikey shootings. Yep. And we drove in there and thinking that we're just backing them up, we're just going to help them, help them out. But there were no coppers in the car park at all. We drove in, there's bodies everywhere, and there's guys walking around with guns. Oh my God. And we got out. We didn't even draw, draw our weapons. We just got out and told them to put them down. They did. And they did. They yeah. complied. Oh, yeah, because... The, the, from, well, they probably shot themselves all out. Well, they were in shock themselves, I think. I because bet. I think they were playing this this tough bikey game. And when when the, the fighting started, they all got involved. And But then after the smoke cleared, they saw the repercussions. And I think they were shocked, as we were. And I think there were about seven. There were seven dead and about thirty wounded, uh, and all di- all varying, varying sorts of wounds. So um, more reinforcements turned up. They started tidying up the scene and getting people away to uh, the hospital and that sort of thing. And uh, and that's when I thought, I think I might go. To, I wouldn't mind going to the country. <laughs> well, that well, especially lobbing up. Uh, you know, arriving at that kind of uh, scene, it'd be like a battlefield. You yeah. know, and if they're in shock. Obviously, you can only imagine what you guys have, you know, have kind of gone through. Well, I, I'd seen battlefields before. Kabul that day in Kabul, the next day when I got into town, um, the trucks, the army trucks were going around collecting bodies because there was something like 2,000 people killed that night that, oh. before. And in India, uh, we come across bus accidents with 30 people, 30 dead in the back. And um, and one time we actually come across, well, the first vehicle across an accident in Nepal where a bus went over a cliff. Oh. And the passengers uh, of, our, of our bus spent the rest of the day going down, picking up injured people and carrying up to the top. And we just, just so happened to have four Dutch nurses on board and they triaged them. Oh, wow. And then a truck pulled up with canoeists from England and they, they were all doctors. <laughs> oh. And then the authorities turned up, yeah. threw all the injured in the back of a tip truck. And <laughs> in, in the, oh. And, and then took them to a uh, hospital. So, so, so I wasn't... Nepalese bedside manner, hey? Yeah. yeah. So, so the, uh, the uh, this sort of thing wasn't strange to me, but being so close to home, I yeah, see. Yeah. And I had I had twin boys at this stage, so uh, uh, so we thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll try for a country posting. So I applied for a country posting, and they offered me Burke or Foster. Not much of a choice there, is there? It wasn't really? a choice at all. So. <laughs> We, we snapped Foster and that's where we went. And I, was, I stayed there for the next 20 odd years. So. Yeah, nice. Mm. Nice. How, how, much, uh, how much has the police force changed in your opinion over the last, you know, since your time and what you see now? Well, it was changing while I was there. Um, first of all, uh, interviewing suspects or offenders basically was done in your notebook uh, when you're a uniform officer or by record of interview. That means you just type out what they say and what, et cetera. Um, that was uh, obviously that's up to corruption, because you, know, you can verbal people, and that's that was the complaint. Then uh, I, I heard that there was a new section within the police uh, called the error section, uh, and error section was the electronic recording of interviews with suspects. And and I thought oh, this is great, you know, this is the sort of thing I want to get in on. So 
I got onto the uh, inspector in charge of that section, and I said, oh, when can we get an errors machine? And this stage, I'm, I'm a detective. And uh, he said, oh, they won't be rolled out for ages, but you can be a part of the, um, test, uh, test. the test program, if you like. Oh, oh great. So we got an errors machine. Um, but then the lawyers, who had always been cry- crying out verbal, 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 they're crying out that, oh, no, you're, you're forcing them to speak. Uh, so, and this is this is on audio and video, and uh, and we go through the whole rigmarole. So, there's no one's promised you anything. No, 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 I haven't promised you um, uh, a whole load of barley or things like that. No, 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 no. And because a lot of people are happy to get it off their chest. Yeah. And the interview process is not all about admissions either. A, a denial against something that you've got rock solid fact on is as good as an admission because they put themselves in the position. So. So that was great, yeah. But you know, so I was involved in that, and that was a new concept. A lot of the detectives didn't like it for some reason, but now it's just it's commonplace now. <coughs> Actually, it was commonplace by the mid '90s. And another innovation that we come up with is um, we're doing search warrants all the time. And you know, you, you've, when you're giving evidence in, in a court before a jury, you've got to describe in detail what you saw and and, and what what transpired. Um, so I, I happen to have a video camera. And so we started taking my video camera on search warrants. So one day uh, in the early 90s, I'm up before Judge Noblanche, and Judge Noblanche was, had a reputation of being a fierce advocate on the bench. You know, he would tear strips off lawyers, off coppers, off, off the crowd, off everybody. And so I'm, I'm giving evidence, and I've produced this video of a search warrant <coughs> of, a, of a cannabis house, where this house was used for, as a cannabis um, growing centre. And... Um, so we produced it, shown the video, and the, and the suspects are on the video because they're they in the house when we got there, and uh, and it all come out. And he said, um, oh, obviously the the defence they didn't like it. Oh, I mean, they can't have this. This against their permission. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, the judge looked at it, and then he says to me, Detective, who gave you permission to use this video camera? I said, nobody. We decided to use it because it was a good way to um, record the actual scene. He said, very good idea. I want to see that in every case from now on. So, back to the office that, that afternoon, I typed up a, uh, a, uh, a, a, a suggestion yep. that we get video cameras. And I was thinking about a job for myself too, like a promotion. And uh, it went off to, the, to one of the commissioners. And next thing I know, they've decided, they've given the job to somebody else. Uh. And uh, my, uh, my standard, my operating procedure was a one-page document, yep. to, which is easy. Yeah, what came out with it was the thirty-six page operating manual, so no one ever read that, of course, and um, and they produced these cameras that were like the cameras you see the, the newspaper run around with, monster the big things. Uh, we use yeah. a little handy cam. Yes. Um, then they issued them to all the detective officers because we had a small office, we didn't get one. We kept using my little handy ha- cam. home camera. So, but that was to me was a great innovation, and I used it. Um, for the rest of my career, uh, uh, the uh, the video camera on everything. Even though we were uh, arresting someone, I arrested a uh, uh, a child uh, sex offender, and um, go around to get him, knocking on the door, and we we're running the camera up from the first moment we saw him until interview started. Then after interview, and we kept it going for the whole time because this guy we knew we we're going to get allegations out of, yeah, and allegations that we were doing something to him. Yep. And uh, during my career as a detective, I did a lot of um, uh, lot of work with uh, child sex offenders, and and I detail them in my book to a certain extent. It's pretty uh, it's pretty hard reading, and it's pretty confronting, isn't it? That kind of subject, um, and obviously being you know in a small country town at that stage, being doing your detective work, it would have been fairly concerning. It is too, but but you've got to have a, a mindset where you don't get um, emotionally involved. You can't get emotionally involved with any of that sort of work because if you start um, having a go at the offender and that sort of thing, all you do is um, you get them offside. And if they get offside and they go to court and they decide to defend it rigorously, that means your victims have to give evidence. And then your victim gives evidence, a lot of times they're torn to pieces by the prosecution, uh, by the defence, sorry. Yeah. And then you lose. So I, I remember one guy, I tracked him all over Australia. He, he, he had, um, 
I, I had a, uh, a brief on him for two little kids, two little girls, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and uh, <clears throat> and the worst possible uh, offending you could do against a child, he, this bloke did it. He'd been convicted four times before, and he managed to, uh, to escape the neck, so to speak, and I was trying to track him down. I'd, I'd, I'd sworn warrants for his arrest, and I couldn't find him anywhere in the country. So I, um, I forwarded uh, a request to Centrelink and uh, Medicare to get his whereabouts, because I knew he'd have to be on something like that. I got a response back from them saying, no, this is a, um, the Privacy Act says we cannot give you this information. Now, there's no, there's, as far as I'm concerned, that's bullshit. So I thought, oh, I know how to get around this. So I sent back the request again, emphasising, and I attached the warrants, copy of the warrants to the request. And the warrants actually said what he'd done in the indictment. So instantly back, this is addressed, he's in Perth. They gave it straight away without it. I thought to myself, hey, what about the privacy laws now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I got onto the uh, uh, the child sex uh, coppers over in Perth and they started, they put a uh, observation on him straight away. And I was trying to get permission from my bosses to go and get him. And they were humming and harrowing. Oh, why should we pay for this? Why, you know, it's all about money. And uh, the cops in WA said to me, oh, he's starting to uh, get close to one of his neighbours, a Down syndrome girl. Oh, no. And I said, lock him up. Oh, have you got authority to trap? No, no, lock him up. So they locked him up and I said to my bosses, oh, they've locked him up. I've got to go because they locked him up on my warrants. Yes. And uh, at that stage, New South Wales had a policy of transferring prisoners you have to have two coppers because there was a young uh, policeman killed in the mid-80s guarding a prisoner on his own yep. and the prisoner overpowered him, took his gun and shot and killed him. Oh, no. So after that, they said two coppers only. Yep. Anyway, they said to me, no, no, we're not paying for two to go to Perth. you got to go on your own. I had no problem with that. So I went on my own, uh, got, this, got over there and this bloke was talking. So I sat down with him run a video camera on him, and I got confessions at him all the way through. And I even found out some more more victims. Oh, so that's all right. Then we put him on the plane coming back to uh, Sydney, and I got him handcuffed, and he's sitting, he's sitting in the window, and I'm sitting in the aisle. And um, the uh, he wanted to go to the toilet at one stage. And it was obvious he's a prisoner because he was handcuffed to the front. And I took him to the toilet. I got the, uh, the stewardess with the key. And I stood guard on the door while he's in there. I, I took his handcuffs off so he could do his business. And then and when he's finished, I put them back on again, just by him putting his hands out. The stewardess is asking, oh, what, what's he in for? I said, I can't tell you that. He said, no, is it murder? No, 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 no. And then they said, he's a pedophile. And I didn't respond and they and they got the, they knew. So the next thing, we're having a meal and um, he's getting a cup of tea and they poured boiling tea on his lap. <laughs> so, and I thought, oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't want to upset him because I did not want him getting upset. I wanted him to plead guilty and these kids not have to get in the witness box. Because something like that would, would seriously affect them because they've got to relive that all over again. Mm. So by, by remaining congenial with the, you know, with the offender, you're actually protecting them for the second time. Yeah. So anyway. probably, probably something that, um, you know, that you couldn't do if you were too emotionally... No, you can't get most Invest, invested in it. It's like um, sexual assaults against young women. Uh, I had quite a few of those as well. And uh, what we used to do is, as the investigating officer, we would not be the interviewing officer. Because if we were interviewing them and we'd get emotionally attached to them, and that emotion can reflect on the way you deal with the offender. So we had specially trained police officers uh, to male and female, to actually take the statements and to deal with our victims of sexual assault. Um, so amazingly, a lot of, our, of the young female victims preferred male officers to interview them other than female officers, which I was, I was a little bit sort of surprised. But it's a very good system, and, um, <clears throat> and I actually detail a lot of that in, in the book. Uh, the cops, not just the job, as I should say. So... <laughs> So um, I was, uh, as a, an operational detective in a small, a small uh, country area of Foster, we looked after five police stations and, um, and we were on the go all the time. Sometimes there were three of us, most times there was two of us. Um, we'd average a murder a year. Uh, 
several armed robberies, lots of sexual assaults, um, you know, your break-ins and your car theft and things like that. But it was a, uh, a very busy little place. You know, Foster, for a small station, um, two detectives and 11 GDs, we'd get over a 1,000 charges a year. So that's that's humming along, isn't it? It is. It's humming. It's, it's a really uh, moving, and it's on the go all the time. And I still remember once, I was I was working with a, uh, a an officer. He was a uniform officer normally, but he was working with me. And at the station, we worked on a Friday night to help introduce a new uh, concept in the town, where we organised, or actually he organised a, a little bus for the Aboriginal, Aboriginal community to use to keep the kids off the streets, to collect them when they're running around town causing trouble. And so I organised the, uh, the local TV bloke to come around and, um, and to film it, the first few things. And we sort of introduced it. We, we kept it out, but we were in the picture, of course. We are just sort of organising it. And then later at night, we get, we get a sexual assault. Oh, it turned into a sexual assault. At the, at the first moment, we thought it was a robbery. And then we, we found a, a female victim, a, a naked woman in the street, and she'd been viciously uh, sexually assaulted by four young men. Oh my God. Um, and we just happened to stumble across them. Uh, and she told us afterwards that they were talking about killing her when we stumbled across them, and they ran away. And we didn't know she was there, of course. We just saw, we pulled up outside this house for something else uh, and uh, saw these men running. And so we started chasing them. When men run, you, in the middle of the night, you chase them. So I'm, I've, I've, I've chosen the wrong person to chase, of course. Carl, like, Lewis, Carl Lewis or... Uh, no, no. He was about six foot six and built like a Calvinator. <laughs> it, was, oh, no. it was enormous, this bloke. And it, dressed all in white. And I'm chasing him. And he actually went, ran through a fence and knocked the fence over. And I thought to myself, what's going to happen when I catch this bloke? Yeah, but he got away anyway. And my mate lost his bloke as well. As we're walking back to the car, wondering, you know, what's happened here? What, you know, what they're running for? That's when we come across this naked woman, and <clears throat> called an ambulance, and we called uh, sexual assault police officers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Got the ball rolling, called our scientific police in, and we secured the area. Even the, the crime scene, we didn't go in ourselves because I'm, I've always had the mind that a crime scene is one of the most important things because it's rock solid evidence, and if you disturb it in some way or anyone disturbs it, you can destroy evidence. So. We zeroed this thing off. Our crime scene blokes turned up and they started taking uh, shoe prints. And in the end, uh, those shoe prints uh, matched the shoes worn by four blokes that our video guy caught early in the night walking down the street. Wow. And, uh, and then the shoe prints themselves were as good as fingerprints. And then it took us two weeks. We ended up rounding all four up and they all pleaded guilty because the evidence against them was um, overwhelming. And um, they were all convicted and sent away. But uh, that was all a combination of um, luck, because otherwise we would have been I would have been called out later in the night or the next morning for a body. And but the woman survived. Uh, we got the we got the crooks. Uh, none of them were local. They were all from uh, other towns. Um, but um, it was a very good result in the end. So obviously, there's you know there's an exposure. Um, to probably the, the most basic good and evil themes in there. So um, obviously I'm going to use this opportunity to go in to post-police uh, post career. You then become an, uh, a fairly pro prolific writer. Well, just before that, as my career was blossoming, so to speak, I was looking about getting out of Foster and because my kids were, at, were going to uh, were, were finishing school and going to university... So I was looking at getting out and coming up to this area or Sydney um, to get my career moving a bit and probably get into the homicide unit. However, um, during my everyday work, we, we come across an escapee and that turned into a, a, a knife fight, a foot pursuit, a boat pursuit, um, and then my partner went over and broke his wrist and the guy was on top of him with a knife and I shot him. Mm. And so... At, it, is, it does tell one story. You, know, um, you don't take a knife to a gunfight. So, <laughs> and um, but anyway, the, the guy survived, which I'm very thankful that he did survive, yeah. and and so was he, of course. And um, the because uh, I'd hate the idea of, of being responsible for someone's death. But um, then, but during that fight, um, I blew a disc 
and um, and then before I knew it, the police were pushed me out towards the door for retirement. Medical. Yep. So <clears throat> there I was retired well before my time, and um, and I decided I still had plenty to offer the world, and so I decided to start. Uh, I said I have some stories to tell, and I first started off with the. Uh, uh, the, the Top Deck book, uh, Crossing Cottons with Top Deck. And I thought, that's a story there. That's, that's something that not many people have done. Mm. Um, not, be, not many people have done as passengers either, you know, to, to hop on a bus at St. Andrew's Station in Sydney with the idea that you are going to travel all the way from St. Andrew's Station to, uh, to um, Victoria Station in London, uh, even though there were a couple of flights involved and some and some some local buses and trains uh, through Southeast Asia, but that was a journey and a half. And to me, it was a, a fantastic journey. And as I said, I detail it very uh, a lot in my book and uh, a lot of a lot of literal sort of stories. You know, we bus breakdowns, bus pranks, uh, losing passengers, finding passengers, people getting sick. You know, there's all sorts of things in there. Ah, and love affairs. So many uh, people met their life partners like I did. On those tours, mm. and um, so uh, there's, uh, I think uh, there's a couple of trips I had. I think one on, on a bus called Rags. Three couples met up on the trip, and they're still together today. So, Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So then, after that book, I thought, mm, I got my, uh, I still, I still got stories to tell. So I, I started writing the cops book, and uh, even before I published the cops book, um, that's, uh, that's, that's called uh, the cops, not just a job. I was uh, I was having to travel to Berlin quite a few times because my youngest son is a he went to college in the United States, and he was a professional volleyball player in Berlin, and he's there with his uh, American partner who he met at college, and uh, they end up having two children in Berlin, and so my wife and I we uh, we were travelling to uh, to Berlin a number of times, and whilst there uh, we come across some. Um, these little things called Stompelstein or Stumblestones. They're little brass plaques outside doorways. And they had the name of a person and certain dates. My wife, who's Dutch, is also fluent in German, she, uh, she translated them for me. And we found that these Stumblestones or Stompelstein were memorial stones for people who used to live in that house from which, from which they were situated, uh, who were taken by the Nazis and murdered during World War II. And after we come across the one, I start finding them everywhere. In actual fact, there's 10,000 of them in, in Berlin alone. 10,000? Yeah. I thought you were trying to get away from good and evil, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're on holidays and, you know, you're visiting in there, and then these things stick out. Uh, I'm inquisitive because okay. I started looking now at these people and looking at their history. So it took me seven years of research and finding the stories of a lot of these people that I come across, a lot of the a lot of the stories, a lot of the Stompelstein have the names of people, but we find nothing at all because the, the Germans erased them completely from. So obviously, during your research, you would have found out, <coughs> you would have had a fair idea of what uh, what happened when, shall we say, a young German Jew was taken or a family of German Jews were taken from there. Can you uh, expand on what what? Um, what your research has told yeah. you about. Well, I, I had a good knowledge of the Holocaust initially, but not as much as I, as I have now. Um, it really opened my mind up to the, the detail of the Holocaust. It started in 1934 when Hitler came to power. Almost immediately, the persecution of the Jews started. And the Jews were, the Jews considered themselves to be Germans. You know, there's no two ways about it. You know? And most Jews said they were Germans first, Jews second. But the Nazis had a different idea. Almost immediately, they started to stop them from studying, stop them from working their professions, uh, and then they started to tax them. So basically, they send a tax inspector into their home, and they go through the home, and they every single item from every knife, fork, handkerchief, they put a value to it, and then they say, you have assets to the value of 30,000 marks. You will pay, I think it was 27% of that in cash to the state. And so they were robbing them from 1934. And they're doing this every single year. So the Jews knew that time was up for them. And a lot of them started making their way out of the country somewhere else. And, and a lot of countries wouldn't take them. But if they had family in the US or in Palestine or in England or whatever, that's where they went. A lot of them would means, because probably yeah. not all of them had the means to exactly. go. Exactly. 
and they had connections. They might have had businesses. They and might the, have had. And the Nazis, well, the businesses were taken from them. Yeah. And the Nazis would forbid them from taking anything of value from the country. <coughs> In actual fact, they were allowed to take 10 marks with them when they left the country. 10 marks, 10 which marks. would have been the equivalent of? A couple of pounds, like $5. Yeah. In that stage, which would yep. have been, you know, what, in today's... They, they could probably buy a meal for a family. So, it was ridiculous. And so it was persecuted. And in actual fact, the gross national product of Germany during those years leading up to the war, something like 15% was money taken from Jews. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it was robbing them blind. Um, the persecution was... Uh, anyone committed a crime against a Jew, it was never, ever investigated or, 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 or followed up. Now, um, and this went on until the war started. Oh, until, until when, the, when the war started, uh, they had Crystal in 1938. That was the, the the pogrom against the Jews, which uh, initiated because a young Jew shot uh, a, a diplomat in Paris. So that was excuse enough for the Nazis to set their 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 wolves onto the Jewish population, and they killed hundreds and imprisoned thousands, and destroyed businesses right through Germany. Um, that's the night they call Kristallnacht, the, the night of the broken glass. When did it really start to ramp up? In uh... It started ramping up in 1939 when the war started. This is because they hadn't been transporting Jews. They, they were locking them up. Kristallnacht was probably the, the start. The catalyst, is it? Or... That was the catalyst, yeah. That was when they, they started put, uh, putting uh, lots of Jews into concentration camps. And uh, But this was concentration camps where they were just kept. They weren't weren't being murdered at this stage. Um but while this was going on, we have uh, uh, a thing called the kinder transport, or children's transport. Now, I'll write about that too. And with that, they, uh, the British said they'll allow 10,000 Jewish children from Germany. Just, they saw that things were going bad for Jews. So a lot of families, uh, some were sponsored, families had, some had money. Uh, they were getting their children to out of the country, and they're trying to get out themselves. Um, it was a mass exodus but a lot of people couldn't get out. But a lot of children got out. Something, uh, Norbert Wolheim, who's a, um, a young Jewish man from Berlin, was trying to get out himself, but he was a good organiser. And uh, he even did a welding course. He thought, oh, other countries might like welders, so that would get me uh, uh, a visa. But anyway, he was approached by the Jewish community to organise the kinder transport from Berlin. And he dealt with the, the Gestapo, the railways, the British, and they were transporting kids Every week, train loads of kids out of Berlin to England. And he ended up getting about 7,500 himself. And his promise was that he and his wife, and, he, and eventually his son, would also get out. But the war started, the kinder tra- transport finished, and he, his wife, and son were trapped in Berlin. Uh, they, were lived, uh, they were moved out of their apartment into what they called a Juden house, a Jew's house, where they'd have a, a Jewish apartment block, and they just fill in 400 people in there to contain them and to... to you know, Monitor them. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> so, and then eventually he was, um, he and his family were transported to Auschwitz, um, not knowing, all they knew, they were going to the east to work. Uh, and they were transported in cattle cars. Uh, those cattle car, the transports were awful. Before they got on there, they were actually robbed blind again because they were robbed from pillar to post all the time. Transported, uh, a lot of people died en route uh, on these cattle cars. Uh, there was no food. Uh, one bucket for a toilet was filled within an hour. And the cattle cars themselves, when you look at the space of the size of a cattle car and how many people have fitted in, if you get one square metre, now you imagine you get one square metre, you put three people standing in it. Not much room. Each with a suitcase as well. <coughs> That's it. So it was standing room. When someone fell and on the ground, they were at everybody else's feet. And it, was, uh, it wasn't unusual when they arrived at Auschwitz that there would be half a dozen bodies on a carriage. People Just died. because of the oxygen and the, yep. and, and the radiant heat. Yep, and, and also oh, the fear and all sorts of things. And a lot suicided as well. Did they really? Yeah. So Norbert was taken off the train, separated from his wife. His sister was also on that same train. And the last he saw of them put him on the back of a truck and driven away. And he didn't know where they were going. He was sent to Auschwitz three, and uh, that was which was a slave labour camp, a chemical factory. Um, uh, I.G. Farben was the the name of the company, and they actually made the gas that killed the Jews. 
So he was sent there. He only found out later that his wife, his son and his, and his sister had taken and were murdered immediately. And they did that to all women with kids, all those who they didn't think could work, uh, elderly and the very young. They were all killed immediately. And people like Norbert were put to work. And the work and the treatment was so severe that it was down as they were worked to death. They worked, they worked for the purpose and they were to die. And, and people were committing suicide because it was just too well, much. Too much. But just so happens at that uh, Auschwitz III, there was a POW camp for British uh, Commonwealth soldiers. And Aussies, Kiwis and British were, were kept there. There's about 2,000 of them. They also worked in the in Auschwitz Street as slave labour, but they had better rations because they were getting for, uh, for Red Cross parcels. Norbert puts his survival down to these Australians and, and British uh, POWs who gave them food, gave them clothing, because um, you know they're in the Polish winter and all they had was the thin cotton, mm. uh, blue and white striped suit. You you would yeah, and if you've ever had the you know what I mean that kind of real coldness where your bones are, sh- mm. are shaking yeah. that would have been, you know, seven days a week, twenty four hours a day, and very little sleep. Yep, and very little food. Oh. So he puts his survival down to them. Uh, near the end of the war, they can hear the artillery from the Russians, and the Germans decided that they're going to keep their slaves, but they're going to march them to Germany. And we're talking minus twenty degrees. Oh my goodness. Um, Something like in, in Norbert's group of something like, uh, I think it was about uh, 6,000 prisoners were marched off. Uh, after months of marching and a train journey, uh, something like 1,000 got to the destination. The rest were, were left on the way dead. They, killed, they were killed on the way. And Norbert eventually escaped and survived the war. Uh, and then he sued IG Farben for the lost wages for all the slave labourers that they, they used as slave labour. Wow. And, really? Yes, and he got 30 million marks to go into a fund, not for himself, but into a fund to assist uh, survivors of Auschwitz, which is a, a story in itself. And yeah. uh, uh, Norbert Wolheim, to me, is a, is a, is a real hero. And um, so, but the, the bloke who managed IG Farben at Auschwitz uh, never prosecuted, and he uh, retired in the 60s on an IG Farben pension. So, <laughs> and this was the man who said oh to, the, to, the, to the Gestapo or to the SS, oh, these people, are, these, this whole group's no good because they're working too slow. So they'll be all taken away and killed and replaced by new slave labour the next day. So he was culpable as anybody else. But... Um, what kind of volume was there that, that was going through there at that time? Of people? In the work camp? Oh, the, yeah. No, well... Like when they come off the cattle car... You know how, how you know how long is the how long is the convoy? You know, is it uh, a cattle car would bring up the six thousand uh, Jews in one trip, oh and sometimes up six to eight cattle cars per day. So forty-eight thousand, hmm. fifty thousand people. Yep, yep. and they'll per process, day. Yep, per day. That's that's the heavy days, and and then the other days was it was a lot less. At one stage, when they were bringing in Hungarian Jews, and we're talking tens and tens of thousands of them, they the um, the the ovens could not dispose of the bodies fast enough, so they put them in, uh, in in open fields and set fire to them, and the stench covered the entire countryside. That's how bad it was. It was just, it was. Uh, you can't call it murder. Uh, it's it's a it's a genocide. It's just you can't imagine how someone could actually carry out those functions, but they did. Mm. Yeah, I, I think. Um I think to to us now, you know, in our in our kind of our TikTok and Facebook kind of in uh, ways where we've we've kind of or we don't choose to to acknowledge or you know it's an attention kind of thing. We don't really consider those kind of scenarios actually happened. Well, it can uh, it did happen and it can happen again, and it's something that we should not forget because we've got to be cautious of the fact that this could happen again. And we can see what's happening now in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, it's not happening as, that as much, but uh, wholesale murder in, in some of these conquered villages and towns is, is happening. And what would, what would have happened if the Russians were successful in taking the whole of Ukraine? Yeah, well... We've, we've, we've seen genocide happen in Africa. Uh, we've seen it in Yugoslavia you know, since World War II. 
Pol, Pol Pot in, yep, Pol um, Pot in, in Cambodia. Cambodia. Yes, um, the Russians and Stalin, obviously, oh, yeah. through there, they, you know, they... Um, oh, 40s and 50s in Russia, that was uh, a horrible time. Well, apparently, they, they they killed, you know, in a factor of, you know, tens. Of millions, uh, yeah. More, and more than the, than the, than the Germans did mm. in World War Two. Yep. And you just <coughs> kind of think, you know, how, how does... How does how do we live in a in a in a world where evil like that exists? Yeah, it does, and and I think looking at um, people, and I, and this is the people of that I've come across in my lifetime, in the travel, uh, in the police, etc. You can always turn someone into that sort of person if you give people, especially someone who has a, a, a low self esteem, uh, they're, they're they've got a, a mundane job. All of a sudden, you give them power. They'll do anything. And that's when you look at the SS and a lot of the camp guards during World War Two. They were those sort of people, low, of low self-esteem, had mundane positions, and all of a sudden you gave them a uniform and power, and they became barbaric. Do you think they were that smart they did that by design? If they, if you want the most barbaric people, obviously, you know, following that recipe, mm. would do you think somebody would say, okay, well, let's get all the guys that have been downtrodden, mm. you know, by Jews, and then really give them? Well, that's very possibly by design because there's a lot of the things the Nazis did were by design. For example, when they were moving the um, uh, the, the Jews to the concentration camps, and they were robbing them of everything, and then they were purposely not given water or food or toilets. So when they're on those carriages, and sometimes they're up to four days, they they were standing in, in stench for the whole time. And when they arrived at the destination and they were told, oh, because they were filthy dirty, they stunk, you're going to the showers. Oh, thanks very much. They were keen to get into the showers. They were running in there, yeah. Yeah, because they were, were put in that position before they left. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, you, you imagine, you know, if you're so it's by design, really. Yeah, it's it's a very evil design. It was a lot of evil design. Same as when they got into the shower box and, and other... Because Auschwitz wasn't the only concentration camp where they murdered people. There were a lot, lot of other murder centres as well. And the, the prisoners um, uh, would arrive at a murder centre and be, the, the guards would have white coats on like doctors. And they'd say, oh, get undressed, keep your underwear on, you're going to be deloused. Make sure you remember what your number of your hook is where your, your clothes are hanging on so you can come back and get them. But they weren't coming back. They knew it all yeah. yeah. But it put them at ease. They were easily controllable, and then they were murdered. So. Well, that's right. How do you control... Mm. How, do, how do you reduce resistance yeah. by by the appearance of a favour mm-hmm. or kindness? Yeah. Wow. So this research for this book, uh, I probably researched for about seven years. Um, f- very fortunate for me that the Nazis kept fantastic records. Was there times where where it all became a little too much um, to you know like when you're going through all this and you and you just see such sorrow and and heartbreak in some of these stories? Were there times where you were emotionally affected? No, I don't, I, I'm a person. I don't have a great deal, a lot of emotion. I I, I think about it. Yes, it's not something I'll break down in tears about. But I, you know, like yeah. something to go, oh, you know, like you really kind of can't get over something for a little while or is it just something you in your analytical kind of way you went I really want to bring this story in so I can't be I can't really get into the emotional side of what I think because I need to bring this story out uh, it made me angry the fact that a lot of a lot of those people who perpetrated these crimes by their own hand were never punished and it does make me a little bit angry now that they're chasing up 98 year old men who are who are 18 year old guards at a concentration camp and they're, and they're prosecuting them now when in the last 50, 60, 70 years, a lot of the, the heads of these departments, who, who people who controlled it, were let go. Yeah. And that, that, that's what annoys me. They should have been chased up to the empty degree. But that ship sailed. Yep, they're gone. Yeah, that's long gone. Yeah. Um, was there any, like, really special stories of, um, of Jews that, uh, that got out and, um, and did, did things special? Well, um, <coughs> the way I've put this... When I was designing this book, to put it, I had to figure out a way of how I'm going to lay it out. So I went via the address. So I would uh, pick a, 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 an address like Ludwigstrasse number ten in uh, Schlossenburg. That was one of the one of the, the addresses I come up with. And in that uh, the, the, the buildings around that, because oh, 
before I should, should say, all the buildings in Berlin are five five floors. Five floors. Five floors. That's that's Berlin's a unique place. That's fantastic, you know. And but five floors, and each and each one of those floors has about four two bedroom units. Has a centre courtyard where where where, where the uh, the rubbish is and the garden. They they have you know. That's, that's to me. It's a it's a really good design. And they started this uh, 120 years ago. Five floors. Four, uh, four two-bedroom four two apartments and a garden and utilities. Floor. Yep, in the centre. Oh, in the, wow, in the centre, that is? Centre that courtyard. Is, yeah. Uh, no garages. And also the cellars, each each unit has their own cellar for storage. Huh. So, so anyway, Ludwigstrasse number 10. Um, in that area, the 67 Jewish neighbours <coughs> were murdered by the Holocaust. Huh. And But that, that was quite low compared to some streets. Um, the... Uh, the family uh, at number 10, I, I actually detail what happened to all the people who lived there, or all the victims who lived there, and most of them, the story is, is very limited, that they were taken on a certain day, they were taken to um, uh, Hamburgstrasse, which was a collection point in Berlin, and then marched to the railway station, put on railway cars, and taken to uh, either Auschwitz or to Theresien, which was in, uh, which was a, um, a display camp, if you like, for the Red Cross that was in the, in Czech, Czech Republic. So, but the one family, George and Charlotte Nomberg, they are, that was a family that I zeroed in on because there's some great stories with them. They uh, saw the writing on the wall. George uh, was a uh, clothing manufacturer. He'd been persecuted since 1926 and he had to leave Coburg where they, where they lived originally. His factory was burnt down by the local Nazis when they first getting in the swing of things, and they moved to Berlin, he created a new factory, and then during the persecution time, his factory was taken off him. And that's what they did. They just said, look, no, out, and they put one of their own people in. So, but George had some savings, and first of all, he was trying to get visas for him and his wife to go to Chile, and then, but, that, but that persecution from 1926 followed him everywhere. And we've got to remember too, George was a soldier in World War One for the German Army. Oh, oh wow! Hey, so, gratitude. Yes, gratitude. And so he, he thought, "We'll get our kids out first. So he had two sons, Manfred and Harry. Manfred was the older. First of all, they they managed to get Manfred to Palestine, uh, and that was just for immigration to a, to one of his aunts. And Harry, they got Harry to England through the Kinder transport, and he was taken by, by um, uh, the bloke I mentioned before. Now, Harry went to a special school in Scotland. Uh, the war started, and Harry and the other Jewish-German boys were sent to a British prisoner of war camp because they were looked at as being Germans. Germans. In that camp were German submariners and Nazis, and the Jewish kids were put with these Nazis. Oh. And, and, and anyway, a little while later, they realised there was a mistake and they separated them. And then they realised the mistake was even bigger and they put, sent them back to their school. <coughs> Harry, he decided to join the British Army to do something because he had to have a job because he, he was now yeah. just turning 18. Yep. And <coughs> they could not join the, the regular army, but they could join the service corps as, as non-citizens. They worked as part of the army, but they were... They're basically labourers, building army bases and things like that. Yep. And then Harry saw a notice. They wanted German-speaking um, soldiers for a special unit. And that was 10 Commando Group, X Troop it was called. And this was a group made up of 75 German Jews. And they were trained as commandos in, in Wales. And, um, and he had to change their names because uh, if they kept their, 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 their Harold Nomberg, yep. they would know where they come from. Yes. So he changed his name to Harry Drew. Drew was the name of his teacher, his English teacher at the, at the Scottish school. And Drew joined the RAF as a, uh, a bomber pilot and he was lost. He was shot down by a German fighter over the Bay of Biscay later in the war. But anyway, Harry was a commando. And during up, leading up to D-Day, Harry landed in France to, uh, to do his job, which was to grab some German prisoners, bring them back and interrogate them, and to also look at the lay of the land. Uh, Harry uh, 
landed on the first wave on D-Day on on Normandy, and he was walking right behind his commander, Lord Lovett of the Sixth Commando, and his his role was uh, there were two um, two uh, X troop troopers with each commando group, and as they fought through the Germans at night time, the two uh, X troopers would would go into the German lines, grab a couple of prisoners drag them back, interrogate them, find out what, what they're opposing, and then they'd move from there. So next day they knew what was in front. Is this like the the scene from Inglorious Bastards, that movie? Uh, no, that was more running around murdering people. These these guys were part of a, uh, you know, it was a... Bit I of think, intelligence yeah, gathering. Yeah, and, and fighting. Um, Harry was wounded several times. Um, uh, he finished the war eventually. Um, now, I, I actually detail a lot of his exploits right through the war. He was there right through to Operation uh, Market Garden in, and then when they crossed the Rhine. He finished the war in Berlin and uh, I'll, I'll stop with him there. His brother Manfred, he joined the Jewish Brigade in Palestine. It was a British army unit made up of, of Jews from Palestine and he fought all through North Africa and then through Italy and when the war finished he was in North Italy. So and then he's hopped on a train and obviously kept in contact with his brother and they met up in Berlin. Oh, wow. And they couldn't find their mother and father, of course, because mother and father were actually on the first transport out of Berlin to the, to the first murder transport. Because oh. I said, I believe that he was earmarked by the Nazis. Of course. Yeah. Someone, someone prominent like that, yep. you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd want to... Yeah, they didn't like him. So. No. So, um, and then the, the two boys... They, they met up again and uh, eventually um, Harry, uh, he, he went to immigrate to America. He joined the 82nd Airborne as a paratrooper for the, for the Americans and his brother Manfred went back to Palestine and he lived there. Actually, Manfred was one of my interviewees uh, for, the, for this book. Uh, I interviewed Manfred several times to get their story, and, but Manfred passed away last year at 99 years of age. So, 99. Yeah. So that's that um, little story about... Uh, about the Nombergs, and um, that's it. So that's all in this hollow Berlin hollow homes. Yes, amazing work, Trevor. Amazing. The, st- work. the stories themselves. That you know, you could write about the whole lot. Could be about the death and destruction of the, of the Jewish race of six million people, but you know, I do touch on it a lot. But what I have touched on a lot is is um, uh, stories of uh, sacrifice. Survival of of of, of Harry's parents, for example, yes. sacrificed themselves for their children, and survival of others. Um, in 1943, the Nazis declared Berlin to be Jew-free, but at the end of the war in 1945, a couple of thousand Jews were still alive in Berlin. They hid there the whole time, and they were hidden by non-Jews. Majority of them were hidden by non-Jews, yeah. and, and I have a couple of stories about some of them as well. Oh, wow. um, one young Jewish woman, for example. She's uh, on a bridge in Berlin and she's decided she's living on the street, freezing cold, and she's decided to jump off the bridge and kill herself. Mm. And just before she jumped, she was grabbed and dragged off the bridge by a uh, German army officer. Mm. This German army officer took her home, gave her money, let her stay in his place while he went back to the war, and she survived the war. And they eventually met up again after the war, because he was imprisoned by by the Russians for a while, and they married and lived happy ever after. Oh, my goodness. The same officer, though, was visiting his parents in the little cottage outside Berlin. Yeah. And there was a, a Jewish family hiding out with forged papers in the same locality, the neighbours. And they heard a rumour that, that they'd been dobbed in and the Nazis were coming for them. So they went and knocked on the door, these people who they knew, and thought, oh, we know them pretty well, to ask for help. And the door was answered by a German army officer, the same guy who saved the woman. Yeah, okay. And uh, they fled, they would have, yeah. No, come in. And he said, what can we do? And so he housed them in his apartment in Berlin and they they survived the war as well. And this German officer, you know, they they were sympathetic. A lot of people were sympathetic, but um, the Germany was run by fear. Yes. Uh, The German, uh, the Nazis... um, they executed something like 40,000 soldiers during the war. By not following... By not doing what they're told. 40,000? 40, 40,000. And 
there were something like in Berlin alone, something like three thousand Berliners were executed in the local jail for helping. No, for just saying the wrong thing. <sighs> really? So if you were having conversation uh, over coffee and you said, "Oh, that Hitler's going to be the death of all of us," you end up in jail. Just this massive fear <clears throat> campaign. And the method of execution for civilians was beheading, which I, I was civilians. No, the, the method of execution yeah. was beheading. That they, was it. They used a guillotine to, to uh, execute their prisoners. Nice and public. Always, no, no, no in, in a side room. I always thought that was a French thing. Yeah. But the Germans have been doing it for ages. And before they used a the guillotine, they used to use an axe up until before the war started. So. Well, <coughs> chopping block, wow. That's, uh, yeah. no, that's, um, that is just, it's, it's boggling, isn't it, really, yeah. to see that? So what's, um, actually, all right, well, um, Obviously, you've given us stories that potentially could, you know what I mean, could um, really bring all this stuff to light. You know, it's it's tough stuff, but you've, you know what I mean, you've done, you've obviously researched your stuff, and it's been a credit to you, Trevor, really, yeah. to bring this up. What's what's now? Um, we've what's got, next? Well, oh, for, for these books, we've got a, an author event uh, on Saturday, uh, this Saturday at the uh, Book Face at Erin Affair. Date? Uh, this Saturday is the. What's the Saturday? I can't even think of the date. Maybe the 12th, is it? Or Hold on a second for that. And um, you did mention before, just before we um, before we started recording, um, you've been asked to uh, collaborate with some, uh, with some film producers on uh, your top deck uh, book. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, before we go, 12th, Saturday the 12th. Saturday the 12th. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. 10 a.m. 2 p.m. at um, at the book Facebook Erin Affair, and if you do come along, you're welcome to uh, to buy a book, of course, and uh, a signed copy, and um, ask any questions at all about a- any of the uh, the books. Outstanding. Yeah. So yeah, um, so uh, I just as I mentioned before, you you've gone into the movie business. Is this correct? Well, not me. Um, there's a film being made to uh, commemorate Top Deck Travels 50 years. Now. Top Deck Travel, for those who don't know, uh, was the company I worked for. Um, it's a small little bus company in Europe. The guy who founded that founded Flight Centre. Flight Centre? Yes. So he still runs Flight Centre, uh, a screw turner. And um, the, uh, they're, they're making a, a film, uh, a one and a half hour uh, movie on uh, Top, Deck tra- uh, Top Deck Travel, if you like, or Double Deck Bus Travel, and uh, to, to commemorate the 50 <laughs> years. Um, you see the, uh, uh, you know, because a lot of those passions from that first trip will be interviewed from 1973. Yep. And um, we're, we're in pre-production at the moment. I'm, uh, I've been asked to be an executive producer, which I've been assisting with um, getting a lot of stuff together. And they will be getting to uh, take a bus that we've sourced, a double-decker bus, to Morocco in February and March for a month filming around and filming some of the great sites down there, and it's also in Spain and, and France. So. Yeah, nice. How good's that? So, um, yeah, it's uh, that, uh, the old uh, adventure days have come full circle. Yeah, and that film will be released uh, at the Brisbane International Film Festival next year. It's already got a slot for it. Uh, we expect to see it in cinemas. Hopefully the Boca Cinema will pick it up. And Netflix is uh, also knocking the door for it. So. Nice. Mm. How good's that? <clears throat> All right, well, um, that pretty much uh, kind of wraps it up for today, but um, we, can't, we can't thank you enough for actually coming in here and, and sharing all of this, you know, obviously the, your life and the stories around there and, and obviously your work, mm. which is so very important. Um, from, uh, from the long road, thank you very much, Trevor Carroll. Uh, all the best, mm. and uh, we hope to get you in here at another stage after your next uh, exciting adventure. No worries. Thanks very much, Trevor. Thanks, Rob.